Hi, I'm Michelle, and I'm... Wait, am I the straight-laced psychotherapist? I thought I was going to be the unconventional hypnotherapist, and you were going to be the super serious trauma specialist. No, you were going to be the relationship expert. Like, love expert. And you're going to be the specialist who guides people with down-to-earth techniques for transmuting trauma? Yeah, yeah, that's me. Okay, good. I'll be the love expert. I mean, I am the love expert. I think we have this all sorted out. I'm Laura Richer, founder of Anchor Light Therapy Collective. And I'm Michelle Mooney, a therapist at Anchor Light, and this is Holding Ground. Today and every Monday, we've got a little bit of everything for you. Shall we? Yeah, let's do this. Welcome to Holding Ground, a podcast on everything positive mental health here on KKNW 1150 AM every Monday morning at 9. My name is Michelle Mooney, and I'm a psychotherapist at Anchor Light Therapy Collective in Seattle, Washington. You can find us at anchorlighttherapycollective.com. Today, I am joined with special guest, Dr. Elise Rosenberg, a child and adult psychiatrist from Mountain Mental Health, PLCC. Together today, we'll be discussing how ADD, ADHD and autism present in and impact both children and adults. Dr. Rosenberg, thank you so much for being here. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your organization, and the work that you do? Great. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for having me on the show. I'm excited to talk today about a very uh, relevant and timely topic. Um, So I began my career um, actually uh, in New York. Uh, Prior to medical school, um, I worked at Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and there I did patient education and clinical trials, and I uh, loved working with patients, and I was really interested in psycho-oncology, how a diagnosis impacts our mental health. And as I worked there, I realized I uh, wanted to learn more about patient care and the science behind it. So then I decided to go back to medical school and uh, I went to medical school in New Jersey. And then after that, as a psychiatrist, um, you apply for residency, which is four years. And I did my residency back in New York City at Beth Israel Medical Center. Um, In my residency, you get a lot of exposure to children, adults, Um, you do inpatient work, outpatient work, You work in the community as well on different uh, team programs. And after that, after residency, I've worked for about 10 to 11 years with children and families. Um, I've worked in different settings. I've worked with children in foster care, uh, through the Department of Children's Services, through family court doing evaluations. Um, I've actually worked directly in a school with a social worker, and um, I worked uh, with teachers providing education, um, as well I've worked in community clinics and private practice and hospital settings. Um, About six years ago, I moved out to Seattle, and um, during that transition, I actually, six years ago, I actually started telepsychiatry, which everyone is doing right now, Um, but I started a little bit early. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was a great experience. Um, There's a huge uh, demand. It's very, um, as you uh, would, as you guys see probably clinically, it's really hard to find a child or adult psychiatrist within the community. There's a huge uh, demand, but not a very big supply. So I had provided telepsychiatry. I was located in Washington. Uh, The patients though were located in Minnesota Um, and it was a really great learning experience. Then about two years ago, 
um, I transitioned to telepsychiatry where I provide that to Arizona. And then about a year ago, um, I decided to transition to opening a part-time private practice. So uh, that's what I do right now. Uh, my private practice is uh, located in Bellevue on the east side in Washington. Um, but all the services that I provide right now are through telepsychiatry or video conferencing. That is a really impressive background. I mean, you really just have gotten your breadth of experience from every angle, it sounds like. And that, thank you, that is really impressive. We're so excited to have you here. And then, yeah, that's a very fascinating piece that you started doing telehealth before we all kind of had to start doing telehealth. Yeah, it was a really exciting and innovative experience. Um, the technology really has always been there, right? We've always, um, you know, had Zoom or even Microsoft Teams. Um, unfortunately, some of the limitations with telepsychiatry are reimbursement. Um, so for a while, um, insurance companies were not agreeing to uh, pay for telepsychiatry, as well as you have state and some federal mandates or requirements that make it a little more challenging. Uh, for example, you do need a, a medical license in the state that the patients are located, not only the state right. that you're located in. Um, and that um, in the next 10 years going forward, I do believe is going to change. They are working towards, um, there are interstate medical compacts, meaning you can get a medical license in one state and then easily get a, a license in another state. Because unfortunately, sometimes getting a medical license can take months. For example, California can some take six, sometimes take six months to a year. Right, right. And with our therapy licenses, like you're right, we can only practice within the state we're licensed in. So we do sometimes get clients from out of state who want to do telehealth with us because it seems like that's practical, right? We'll all just jump online together. But in reality, we can't uh, meet with clients outside of Washington state since both Laura and I at our practice are only licensed here. So there is a hurdle there for sure. Yes, right now I maintain a license in Minnesota, Arizona, Washington, and New York. So it really gives me a very national perspective on mental health for children and adults and seeing the strengths and weaknesses you know, nationwide. That's great. Great. Well, why don't we jump a little bit more into our topic here today? Thank you so much for suggesting this topic um, to our listeners. So we're going to start talking a little bit here about ADD, ADHD, and autism. Again, how they present in both children and adults. But starting from the beginning, um, Dr. Rosenberg, can you give us the differentiation between ADD and ADHD for our listeners? Sure. And that's a great question. Um, so sometimes it can be really overwhelming as a patient. There are lots of acronyms and there's lots of jargon. <laughs> so to clarify, ADD is attention deficit disorder. Uh, we traditionally think of, of that as more of the inattentive type. Um, a, a little bit later, I'll, I'll go into the DSM-5 criteria for what mm -hmm. constitutes inattention. Um, but uh, traditionally, these are the kids more that you would think of that are maybe spacing out or having trouble focus, having trouble with their attention span. ADHD is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So these are more of the kids that you would uh, see on TV or think of as the hyperactive kids. Um, traditionally, it's usually more boys. And um, it's, uh, you know, the teacher is usually uh, more concerned about these kids because it's a much more out, um, external or outward presentation. Right, right. 
Great, thank you. Um, so how do we know exactly when a child is working through a standard development issue versus when they might need medication or psychiatric interventions for ADD or ADHD? Yeah, and that's also a great question because a lot of parents come in uh, having concerns or worries about their children and not knowing when, uh, you know, when is a good time to come in or is this concerning or not? And so with ADHD or ADD, what we're seeing, it's a persistent pattern. So what that means, it's not just, you know, one day or one week. It's a, a long time period of probably usually up to about six months of inattention or hyperactivity or impulsivity. And these symptoms, the severity of the symptoms are impairing your functioning. So it's affecting your school performance. It's affecting social relationships. Um, in adults, it's affecting uh, marriages and it's affecting work performance. And we want to see these in two um, environments. So either at school and at home or at work and at home. So again, it's a persistent pattern of inattention or hyperactivity that is impairing functioning. And we're seeing it in different environments. Great, thank you. Um, so how early can you detect ADD, ADHD in children? And what would we need to start noticing in our children to know that this might be what's going on? So some maybe a couple of pieces of diagnostic criteria? Sure. And so I see kids really of all ages. Um, I've seen kids um, because we all, I also, I evaluate for all different type of psychiatric or mental health diagnoses. So I've seen kids as young as 18 months, um, but to kind of officially make the diagnosis, the American Academy of Pediatrics says uh, as young as four. Um, and again, the four-year-olds, I, I certainly do see four-year-olds, but again, the, at four, it's going to be an extreme presentation. So these are kids that unfortunately have been uh, removed from daycare or asked to leave daycare, really cannot play cooperatively with other kids, cannot sit during, you know, circle time or can't take turns. So a lot of hitting or don't have a good sense of social boundaries, kind of uh, touching somebody or when you're in line, kind of constantly moving. They aren't really able to play independently for more than like three minutes or so. This is in the preschool environment. As well, they don't really listen to the teacher. So they need frequent and constant redirection to put their lunch bag away or their clothes away. As well, they have no sense of danger. So many times parents will come in and say, you know, we went to Target and in the parking lot, they just bolted. And I was really nervous um, mm -hmm. as well. I've even had kids who will unlock the front door at three or four and run out into the street. Yeah. Um, wow. And so um, what I'll talk a little bit more also now um, about the criteria. Um, that's kind of the preschool child, but the, for primary education, like for elementary school, uh, you're going to want to think of kids that really aren't able to sustain focus for more than 10 minutes. These are also the kids that are really forgetful, where you're like, <laughs> you know, I bought him 10 lunch bags, or we've every, you know, two months we're buying a new coat, we're always losing glasses, um, and they're also really distracted. So, um, you know, during class, they're, you know, looking at the clock, looking at their friend, um, very uh, distracted by the external environment. They're also really restless. They have trouble sitting in their seat. 
um, uh, as I mentioned, they're in intrusive, meaning like they um, are always touching something on their neighbor's desk or, you know, touching their face or really have a poor sense of social boundary. As well, sometimes they're disruptive in the classroom. So interrupting the teacher, frequently talking. Great, thank you. We're gonna jump right back into this in a moment, right after a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're gonna talk more about how these symptoms present in both children and adults and how parents, teachers, friends can play a supporting role in their lives. So thank you for listening to Holding Ground here on KKNW, we'll be right back. Alternative Talk 1150 is your sports organization's safe bet when it comes to airing your team's games. Our players are all seasoned professionals when it comes to sports programming. Imagine your games being heard on local radio. Your team deserves the MVP treatment. Call 425-653-1150 today to learn how affordable and fun it is to broadcast your games on the radio. Call 425-653-1150 and make your next season something special. That's 425-653-1150. Thanks for tuning into our brand new show, Holding Ground. You can find us here every Monday morning at 9 a.m. I'm Laura Richer, founder of Anchor Light Therapy Collective. And I'm Michelle Mooney, the co-host of Holding Ground, a therapist at Anchor Light Therapy Collective. Our passion, our one big thing in life, above and beyond love, relationships, trauma, addiction, and healing, our specialty is helping others. Every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Find us online at anchorlighttherapy.com. COVID-19 is a severe lung infection. Trust the American Lung Association for science-based public health information, especially for the 36 million Americans who live with lung disease. We have resources to protect your lung health, access expertise from medical professionals, and peer-to-peer -peer support through our online communities. Visit lung.org for daily updates or call 1-800-LUNG-USA. No other station delivers this much variety. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Holding Ground. I'm Michelle Mooney, a therapist at Anchor Lake Therapy Collective in Seattle, Washington. And today I'm here with Dr. Elise Rosenberg, a child and adult psychiatrist from Mountain Mental Health, PLCC. Together today we're discussing how ADD, ADHD, and autism uh, show up for both adults and children. Dr. Rosenberg, can you remind our listeners where they can find you? Sure. Uh, so a great resource is my website, which is www.mountainmentalhealth. That's M-E-N-T-A-L health, H-E-A-L-T-H dot O-R-G. And so on my website, you can read some more information about me or additional resources as well. If you have any questions, uh, you can certainly give our office a call at 425 243-3018. Great. Thank you. Thank you. So just before the break, we were going to talk more about the actual diagnostic criteria for ADD and ADHD. So why don't you share more with our listeners about that? Great. So um, as I mentioned, the way that we diagnose ADHD is we um, talk with parents, we talk with children, uh, we'll also give rating scales. And the rating scales can be completed, uh, they're used for the parent as well as the teacher. And as the kids get older, even the children will have a rating scale that they complete. And really these rating scales are assessing for the different types of symptoms that children and adults are, are experiencing. The first category uh, for the DSM is inattention. 
And so um, for ADHD, we want to see six symptoms of inattention, and we want to see them before age 12. And so that's an important also diagnostic criteria, the age. As well, as I mentioned, we want to see them in two environments. Um, so either at school and home, or as you get older, work and home. So within inattention, the different uh, diagnostic criteria are, the first one is often fails to play, pay close attention to details or making careless mistakes. Um, and so you'll see that a lot uh, with kids that they're rushing through their schoolwork. And because of that, you know, their grades are lower because they really won't sustain focus for a long period of time. The next one is often having trouble holding attention for a task. So again, that short attention span. And so um, what you, as we get to teens, usually an attention span like less than uh, half an hour. And as I mentioned for elementary, it's usually less than 10 minutes or so. And then for preschool, less than three minutes. The next one is often doesn't seem to listen when spoken to. So many times parents or teachers will say, you know, I'm telling him six times or calling his name and he's just not even, I don't think it's registering in their head because they're kind of off doing something else. The next one is often doesn't follow through on instructions or tasks, doesn't finish schoolwork or chores. This is a really common one that things are half done or like homework is not turned in or that you'll start a pro for an adult, you'll start a project, but you'll have five different started projects, but nothing finished. Um, so I think that is a very common complaint. Mm -hmm. The next one is often trouble organizing tasks. Um, and this is really kind of impaired executive functioning. So trouble um, prioritizing, trouble um, putting things in a pattern, um, even to the basic, you know, of chores, trouble organizing their room, you know, putting maybe all the blocks together or all the magazines, or their desk is usually uh, kind of a mess because that requires organization as well. The next one is avoids or dislikes tasks or reluctant to do a task that requires sustained effort. So if they need to read for half an hour or they need to do their math sheet again for half an hour, they're not, they're not going to want to do that or they're going to, you don't want to play video games instead. Another one is often loses things. So uh, with kids, it's their book bag, pencils, books. With adults, it's our wallet, our key, our cell phone. Um, and then for in a, the inattention category, the last one is getting easily distracted. Um, and that again is you know, uh, seeing something else in the room or with an adult getting in the loophole <laughs> of being mm -hmm. stuck on social media, <laughs> yeah. um, our phone. Yeah. Unfortunately, our phones are, and social media are wired to be inherent distractions. Um, right. So there's lots of stuff in our environment as well uh, within intention, in attention, the last category is often forgetful in daily activities. So forgetting appointments, or uh, in school, uh, forgetting homework, uh, different stuff like that. The second major category is the hyperactivity impulsivity category. And again, you'll need six of these criteria. Um, these are more traditionally what you'll think of again with that typical kind of hyperactive boy. 
of really fidgety or tapping their hands or squirming in their seat and really can't sit still. They're often leaving their seat, um, getting up. And I, you, this has become, I think, much harder with now homes with online school, right? We're asking kids to sit for six hours in front of a computer, which is really hard for a kid who has hyperactivity. Oh, yeah. I, I've been talking to a lot of parents, uh, working with a lot of parents with children with um, either one of these disorders and, you know, just getting kids to sit down and do schoolwork, you know, without these challenges has been hard enough. But yeah, you know, I've had parents had to hire an extra like teaching coach or something to sit with their children and make sure they're, you know, maintaining that focus. So I, yeah, I can only imagine how difficult it must be. Definitely. Um, in the last six months, I'm definitely seeing an uptick in kids and adults coming in with ADHD. Um, nationally, the prevalence in children is about three to 11%. So that's really about 10 out of 100 kids. You know, in, in the past wow. in school, yeah, which is a very prevalent uh, diagnosis. And that's why I'm happy we're talking about it because there are lots of kids out there um, and also lots of adults that, that struggle with this. And a lot of these symptoms are becoming uh, much more prevalent or relevant now that we're doing online learning because there is a lot more distraction there. Uh, it's, it's pruning an environment for hyperactivity. There's lots of accommodations that kids uh, can do at home or in school, but a lot of them are already built in in school. So we're kind of starting from ground zero uh, now kids doing online learning. Mm -hmm. um, but in hyperactivity, right, so they have trouble sitting still, uh, they'll be running around, sometimes they'll even be climbing on stuff, I'll get, uh, sometimes the teachers will say they're climbing on the desk, they're climbing on the bookcase. Um, they're unable to play kind of quietly, they're usually much more loud or moving around, kind of constant motion. A lot of parents will complain of this, that the child is constantly on the go. They're like driven by a motor. Um, as well, sometimes these kids and adults will very, talk excessively, just kind of go on and on about different topics or even blurt out answers when the teacher is talking. They'll also have trouble uh, taking turns or waiting their turn or they're in, it will interrupt others. Um, so those are a lot of the symptoms of the hyperactivity and impulsivity. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for breaking that down. Um, I'm curious if you can speak for a moment about undiagnosed or misdiagnosed adults with ADD. So a lot of times I'll have clients working with clients who, you know, have thought maybe I've always had this, but, you know, when they've perhaps gone to their pediatrician as a child or primary caregiver later in life, you know, they basically ask, you know, how well did you do in school? Oh, wow, I got straight A's, you know, I did really well in school. And sometimes that, that questioning can stop there, but there's so many other symptoms, like you just mentioned, that a lot of children do go undiagnosed until they're in adulthood. So can you speak a little more to that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it, it may dovetail onto some other uh, questions, but children uh, with ADHD, a lot of them do progress to adult ADHD. There isn't, um, to have the diagnosis of ADHD, even as an adult, you still had to have had symptoms that started when you were less than 12. So there's no adult onset ADHD, meaning like where you're getting the symptoms of hyperactivity or inattention, but the symptoms are starting after 21. That's not a diagnosis, but having a diagnosis of ADHD as a child or undiagnosed as a child and the symptoms progressing into adulthood is actually very common. So um, there's still a huge impairment for adults who have ADHD. Um, 
and it's important to talk to the primary care doctor about it. Um, you know, the, the diagnosis was not as common, you know, if let's say you're in your 40s or 50s, uh, those children, ADHD was not as commonly diagnosed and we didn't have the, um, the same tools as we do today. So it's, there are many times that I'll be seeing a child and a parent will say, oh, you know, I really have the same symptoms. Let me, mm-hmm. you know, come in and get diagnosed. So it's very common that I'll see a parent and a child both for ADHD or the reverse where the parent has been diagnosed and they say, you know, I noticed a lot, you know, the same symptoms in my child. Uh, there's a very strong genetic component. It's almost, you know, almost 60% of ADHD is, is inherited and about 50% of uh, children with ADHD will go on to have symptoms as an adult. Great, thank you. Um, Before our next break here, um, I was hoping you could tell us, I I get this question a lot from clients, will my ADD or my ADHD ever go away? Can this be cured? Yeah, and that's a great question. Um, In the past, the the idea was really that it would uh, go away. The, the symptoms, but we're realizing now more and more, many of the symptoms don't necessarily go away. They can certainly be well-treated and well-managed, but many of those kids with um, who develop symptoms as a child will continue to have symptoms as an adolescent. For example, um, the children that progress to teens with ADHD is about 50 to 80%. So that's a large portion. And then as adults, there's about 40 to 65% of people who continue on with the diagnosis of ADHD, meaning that they are still symptomatic. So um, in a certain percentage of people, it can, the symptoms can go away and it can be resolved, but in about half, you're going to continue on to adult symptoms. Even if you are an adult though, and we'll talk a little bit later about treatment, there are very good ways to manage it, but you will continue to have those symptoms. So it's not necessarily quote unquote cured. Great, great. Thank you. All right, listeners and Elise, we're going to take another quick break here. Um, After our break, we're going to jump into a little bit more about autism and how that presents in both children and adults. Thank you for listening to Holding Ground here on KKNW. We'll be right back. We are the physicians, the nurses, the hospital and health system leaders. All we ask of you is to take three simple steps proven to stop the spread of COVID. Wear a cloth face mask. Maintain social distance and wash your hands. Scientific evidence must shape our decisions, dictate our actions, and protect our health. We are not powerless. Together, we will defeat COVID. This has been a message from the American Hospital Association, the American Medical Association, and the American Nurses Association. Thanks for tuning into our brand new show, Holding Ground. You can find us here every Monday morning at 9 a.m. I'm Laura Richer, founder of Anchor Light Therapy Collective. And I'm Michelle Mooney, the co-host of Folding Ground, a therapist at Anchor Light Therapy Collective. Our passion, our one big thing in life, above and beyond love, relationships, trauma, addiction, and healing, our specialty is helping others. Every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Find us online at anchorlighttherapy.com. Have something important to say? Want to help improve our world? Need to promote your business uniquely and effectively? KKNW is the answer. Our staff helps broadcasters and podcasters create professional-sounding audio. Bring your talent and let our experts help you craft a radio show or podcast that best delivers your message. Learn more at 1150kknw.com. That's 1150kknw.com. KKNW, talk variety that's live and local. 
Find out the latest about your favorite shows on Alternative Talk 1150. Check out 1150kknw.com. Welcome back to Holding Ground. I'm Michelle Mooney, a therapist at Anchor Light Therapy Collective in Seattle, Washington. Don't forget you can find us at anchorlighttherapy.com slash get started to schedule your complimentary 20-minute consultation. You can also find us all over social media, Facebook, Instagram, and also our YouTube channel. And today, once again, I'm Get joined by our special guest, Dr. Elise Rosenberg from Mountain Mental Health. Remind us, Dr. Rosenberg, where can our listeners find you? Yeah, looking at our website is a great uh, resource to find out some more information. And our website is www.mountainmentalhealth.org. Great, thank you. So next, I'm going to talk a little bit more about folks, that, uh, children or adults that are on the autism spectrum. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you look for in a child that can, you know, maybe first indicate that they might be on the autism spectrum disorder? Yeah, great question. And so autism is also such a, a relevant topic, especially here um, in Seattle. Uh, you know, and about one in 54 children will be diagnosed with autism. And we've wow. seen, yeah, which is a very high population. And I do believe in Washington, I, we do see a higher prevalence of it uh, just because of the nature of you know, the computer industry. Um, and uh, just nationally, we've also seen the prevalence of autism go up 10% over the last 10 years. Um, so it is a very uh, relevant topic and something that we commonly see within the community. Um, so autism, there are certain, again, uh, similar, there are criteria that you do need to meet to meet uh, the diagnosis of autism according to the DSM-5. Uh, the first major criteria is uh, deficits in social communication and social interaction. Um, so an example of that would be like deficits in social reciprocity. And that's really the idea of a back, back and forth conversation or sharing similar interests or emotions um, and also maintaining relationships and understanding the nuances of relationships um, as well as deficits in nonverbal communication. Um, so it, the uh, practical examples of this are the kids that they're rather, when you ask a question, usually, you know, you'll get a response back and there'll be a question, there'll be a back and forth, a natural kind of flow of a conversation with these kids, really that's very hard for them to do. So you'll ask a question, you'll maybe get a one word answer, you, you'll get a lot of probably poor eye contact, or they won't really be interested in peers. So they prefer to play, you know, by themselves. They're not, they don't really understand the social world around them. So it's very common that these kids will uh, come in in kindergarten or even later years where they prefer to be by themselves. They, um, they don't necessarily understand or have a very hard time reading your nonverbal language. So facial expressions or hand gestures or sarcasm is very hard. Um, as well, a lot of them have restrictive patterns of behavior or interests such as repetitive either motor movements. So flapping their hands is a very common one. Um, kind of their hands go back and forth and sometimes they'll do this when they're excited or sometimes they'll do this just to cope with anxiety. 
A lot of times they'll also do rocking behaviors, uh, kind of back and forth in their seat. And it's not the same as hyperactivity. It's much more rhythmic and um, it has a pattern to it. And again, it's really to manage some of the anxiety that they're experiencing or feeling overwhelmed. Another criteria is like insistence on sameness, very inflexible. So they really need a very structured, rigid routine. And if you deviate from the routine, you may get meltdowns or tantrums or even uh, banging their head or uh, trying you know, to hurt themselves. They have a lot of difficulty with transition. So from going from one topic or one uh, maybe subject to another. So in kindergarten, you'll go from circle time to the desk. That may be really hard for them. They have really rigid thinking. And they also have highly restrictive or fixated interests um, and or almost to the point of preoccupation. Um, so like dinosaurs or trains are a really common one, even uh, w running water. Um, and it's definitely more to the degree, uh, to a very high degree compared to their peers. As well, a lot of them will have sensory issues. So either very sensitive to loud noises these will be the kids that are covering their ears or even wearing the noise canceling headphones or their parents will say, you know, I'm vacuuming and they have to cover their ears or go in another room. They may also have like fixation with a light or they may uh, respond to different sounds and textures differently. So a lot of them will have food aversions because there's a lot of textures and food they won't like, like meats or they won't want any of the food to mix. So a lot of it will be like bland, maybe like rice over here and the meat can definitely not go in with that or the vegetables. Um, so those are the main criteria, really the trouble with social relationships and the repetitive behaviors and the sensory issues. Great, thank you. And then when we're looking at adults and so do these same set of symptoms, are those, you know, they progress with adults as well? Do those change at all or does anything present differently in adults with autism? Yeah, that's a, a great question actually. Uh, mo there are definitely, I would say most people uh, present as a child or not always early childhood, but maybe middle childhood or even teens, but there are definitely a category uh, because the autism wasn't so prevalent or the diagnosis has definitely evolved over the years that will present as an adult. And the presentation is a bit different. It's definitely kind of the stereotyped behaviors, those decrease. Some of them still persist, um, the repetitive behavior. If you even, um, I was watching an interview with Bill Gates the other day, you can see he has the, he still has the repetitive hand movements uh, when you look at his hands move, but that's more uncommon. Uh, usually it's more in adults is kind of that insistent, they'll still have that insistence on sameness, even monotone voice. They don't really have a lot of inflection or emotion, range of emotion um, or sharing social reciprocity. So the impaired social skills or social reciprocity usually persist, but maybe in a milder form because hopefully they've gotten a lot of um, ABA or they've gotten a lot of therapy to help uh, transition them into adulthood. Autism is a spectrum diagnosis. So what that means is you can have very mild cases. Um, in the past, we had the diagnosis of Asperger's, but that's been taken out with the DSM-5. Uh, we've also in the past had a diagnosis of PDD um, and that was removed. So right now 
everything kind of for autism falls into autism spectrum diagnosis. And that falls from very mild um, as you go to like kind of an Asperger's kid to very moderate or severe to kids that really even have impaired uh, speech or verbal skills who are or even nonverbal. Um, so you're going to see a wide variety of symptoms, both kind of in children and as adults. And then prognostically, you'll also see, you know, a variety based on, you know, what kind of symptoms they were having as a child. Gotcha. Thank you. And with both ADD, ADHD, and autism, um, I, I've worked with clients in the past who have kind of basically decided for themselves, you know, I can't be in a relationship. Nobody's going to want to be in a relationship with me, or it's going to be too difficult, those sorts of things. But in reality, folks get, you know, like that are in relationships all the time, but there are hurdles and struggles within their, you know, romantic relationships, even within friendships, um, or in the workplace, even. So can you speak a little more to that? Sure. Um, so uh, the the challenges that people with autism versus people with ADHD will have are, are a little bit different. Um, I'll start with the ADHD. Um, ADHD, the challenges they may have in romantic relationships, sometimes they're very impulsive if untreated, right? So there may be cheating on their wife, or they may be very inattentive. Their you know, wife or husband, excuse me, will say, you know, you're not listening to me. You didn't really hear anything I just said. Or they're very maybe irresponsible about things around the house. It's not divided evenly. So those can all certainly be challenges in a partnership, you know, if if you're looking for something 50-50. You know, there people uh, can certainly, those are things that you can work on, as well as, you know, uh, medication and therapy definitely improves relationships. It improves uh, with ADHD, uh, adults' ability to engage. Um, you know, socially and with their partner and to have more organization for home, for skills and chores and, and such. At, at, at work, uh, when we think of the trajectory for ADHD, um, again, if it's untreated, those um, patients do sometimes have struggles at work. They may lose their job very frequently or impulsively kind of move from job to job, so have, have a lot of different jobs. The complaints that bosses may have is that you're not really paying attention to detail. Sometimes you're late um, and uh, in meetings, sometimes they're not paying attention or they're interrupting frequently. As well with adults with ADHD, we do see that a lot of them uh, sometimes have traffic tickets, like they speed impulsively or get in a lot of accidents because they're not paying attention and you know, you're on your cell phone and not kind of paying attention to the road. Um, and again, all those things though do improve. We, we've done a lot of long-term studies of patients with ADHD on medication. We've seen all of these things do dramatically go down with proper treatment of medication and therapy. Um, that's the ADHD uh, patient. The next one is the autism patient. That's a little bit of a different trajectory. Um, these um, patients need uh, skills training. So relationships are not natural to them. Um, that's one thing that we somewhat take for granted, right? There's this kind of unspoken language of how we were lear learn about relationships and communication and interacting. But those are things that can be uh, taught or trained, um, especially through ABA therapy. Um, that's a wonderful way for children and adults to learn how to engage in relationships. So uh, 
people in autism may have trouble in relationships because they may have trouble initiating. Um, they may not understand kind of the social norms or the social rules. Um, so it may be hard to initiate a relationship. I, that is dramatically changing though. Um, there was even a recent Netflix movie about uh, patients. Oh, with yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it was such a great one. Yeah. It was a wonderful movie. And it really spoke to the wonderful prognosis that you can have with autism, again, with treatment, that we have a lot of treatment options that help people with autism engage in relationships and provide social skills training. Um, for, for adults, there's definitely social skills groups. Um, even they have, um, on the East side, they have a Dungeons and, and Dragons group, which learns social skills, all oh, these things. Yeah. yeah. All these things are wonderful and help people practice skills and improve relationships. For the work environment for autism, that can definitely be um, a challenge. I have a lot of patients um, transitioning into the work environment. Unfortunately, we had really this huge increase of kids and teens with autism, and the world was not necessarily prepared for these people to become adults. <laughs> we have lots of resources for children and teens for adults, but, excuse me, ch children and teens, but we don't have a lot of resources for adults with ADHD, excuse me, with autism. That's definitely evolving and people are becoming more skilled at treating them. But for autism, um, Amazon even has a mentoring program and a special, and Microsoft does too, for a program for people with autism. And in that program, they offer mentorship, they offer skills training. Uh, these patients probably usually prefer uh, like typing rather than talking on a meeting. Uh, there's definitely different accommodations that we can do in the work environment, but they also bring such uh, joy and uh, innovation to our work environment. There was recently, I think, a 60 minute segment on people with autism in the work environment. And one of the um, patients had actually like uh, invented something for uh, NASA. <laughs> and that we yeah. use commonly. Yeah. yeah, so there's lots of creative ways that they uh, support our work environment. It's just uh, as a uh, employer, you have to be kind of willing to offer mentorship and accommodations. Right, right, and unfortunately that's not quite where it needs to be yet with, you know, but it sounds like, you know, a lot of organizations are starting to A, notice this, you know, B, you know, advocate for their workers that do, you know, maybe perhaps have these challenges and get them the skills and resources that they need to do well in their job. So that, that's fantastic. Um, Dr. Rosenberg, we're going to take another quick break here. Thank you for listening to Holding Ground here on KKNW. Do you make a positive difference in the world? Do you have a talent, philosophy, base of knowledge, product or service that you know could help a lot of people if only you could reach them? Join Alternative Talk 1150's family of broadcasters and start walking down a fruitful path as host of your very own program. Dial 425-653-1150 and find out just how affordable it can be to have a show on 1150 AM. That's 425-653-1150. Alternative Talk, we have an opportunity waiting just for you. Thanks for tuning into our brand new show, Holding Ground. You can find us here every Monday morning at 9 a.m. I'm Laura Richer, founder of Anchor Light Therapy Collective. And I'm Michelle Mooney, the co-host of Holding Ground, a therapist at Anchor Light Therapy Collective. Our passion, our one big thing in life, above and beyond love, relationships, trauma, addiction, and healing, our specialty is helping others. Every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Find us online at anchorlighttherapy.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Shelley Place with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. 
Kids are full of energy, but keeping them active in their teen years can be a challenge. Aim for an hour of physical activity every day. If they like sports, that's a great place to start. Keep the focus on fun, not winning, and encourage your child to do a variety of activities. If your child isn't meeting that 60-minute goal, gradually increase their activity in ways they enjoy. For more, talk with your pediatrician or visit HealthyChildren.org. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Holding Ground. I'm Michelle Mooney, a therapist at Anchor Light Therapy Collective in Seattle, Washington. Don't forget, you can find us at anchorlighttherapy.com slash get started to schedule your complimentary 20-minute consultation. I'm here today with Dr. Elise Rosenberg from Mountain Mental Health. And Elise, can you remind our listeners one more time where they can find you? Sure. Going to our website would be great of www dot mountain mental health h-e-a-l-t-h dot o-r-g great thank you so in this segment why don't we start off uh dr rosenberg if you can tell us more about treatments for um both add adhd and autism um you know regarding medication talk therapy and you're mentioning in the earlier segment um, some skills work so if you could expand on that a little bit Sure. So a treatment for ADHD, um, you would definitely usually want to get an evaluation by a psychiatrist. Um, and depending on the treatment for, uh, for each client is, is really tailored. Um, and depending on, though, on the severity of the symptoms, if you are having more moderate to severe symptoms of ADHD, uh, that's when we would be talking about medication. Um, in the medication realm, you do have different types of medication. You have stimulants and non-stimulants. Stimulant medication comes in different formulations. So for younger children, we do have liquid, we have dissolvable pills, as well as we even have a patch. And then we have other medications. Yeah. And so those are, um, all of those are newer formulations. Some of them insurance does give us um, pushback on because they're not generic yet, but some of them are generic. Um, for example, the patch is um, usually approved and very easy uh, for within the stimulant medication. You have short acting and long acting. The patch works uh, continuously. So it's somewhat of a short acting. So what the kids do is they just leave it on during school and they take it off when they come home. So while the patch is on, it's working. And while it's not on, it's not working. The only struggles that we've seen with the patch is sometimes kids can get a rash from it. There is an irritant because of the glue surrounding it. But it's a really nice way because we do have a lot of kids that it is hard for them to swallow pills. Most kids can learn to swallow pills anywhere, you know, from I've had young kids, even four years old, be able to swallow a pill. But I would say the average child is between six and 11 that can swallow medication. And a great way to practice is using Tic Tacs. Those are a really good starting point and they like them. <laughs> right, they taste great. <laughs> yeah, always a good motivation. Because we don't want medication to be an adverse experience, right? Some of, unfortunately, these liquid medications, we can't add additives to. Like with antibiotics, they can put cherry flavor or whatever flavor you want. Unfortunately, with the liquid formulations, we can't add um, flavors to it. You, some of them are stronger than others. Um, most kids will tolerate it, but but some don't love the flavor. So long-term, usually uh, being able to swallow a pill is usually the easiest. Um, I, can, I love oh, the, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I love the patch idea. I personally have never heard of that. So I think that probably really eliminates a lot of those barriers. Like you're just talking about just, you know, putting that on, running out the door and not having to think about it really. I think that's, that's wonderful. 
Yeah, the only limitation, so the only limitation is so you can swim with it, but sometimes with sweat, it may fall off. So that's what you have to make sure. The other thing is you definitely want to write the date and the time that you put it on because some parents forget. That's the other thing. If you have a really busy schedule, if you're going from school to activity and you forget to take it off, th that could be a limitation as well. Um, or some kids will even pull it off because they just don't like having it on. So, uh, but generally it is a really good option for kids. They actually put it on their hip. So that's another thing, kind of making sure it kind of the pants cover it because some kids make it embarrassed, you know, about the patch, but you really can't see it. Um, and the other thing is disposing of it, like making sure you throw it out because there's still active kind of medicine in it. Oh, good point, yeah. But yes, there are lots of different formulations of stimulants and stimulants are medications, as I mentioned, that are short acting. So in younger children, sometimes they don't um, need the medication all day. The way the stimulant works is that when you take the medication, it is actually immediately acting, which is great because we not all of our medications in psychiatry are like that. Some of them do take weeks or even a month to start working, but the stimulants are instantaneous. So you take them and then within about half an hour to an hour, they do kick in. The short acting medications will last anywhere from two to four hours. And with younger kids, sometimes that's totally fine. Or uh, we can also dose it twice a day. So sometimes these kids will take a dose in the morning and then they'll take a second dose with the school nurse. And um, that way it will get them through the entire school day. With older kids or as kids progress to a longer school day, we have longer acting medications. And those will last about eight to 10 hours. So you only need to take them once in the morning and then you're done. So you don't have to go to the school nurse because as kids get older, sometimes there's a stigma or they're embarrassed to get their medication from the nurse. Right, right. Yeah. And so um, with those medications, um, they are safe medications, but they are, are also controlled medications. So what that means is uh, with teens, we wanna be cautious or with adults, we wanna make sure that everyone's taking the medication as prescribed and then they're not being misused or even abused. Um, the stimulant medications, uh, you've commonly heard of them, the short acting like Ritalin or Adderall, and all of those also come in a long acting formulation. Um, the other class of medications for ADHD are the non-stimulants. Non-stimulants, you kind of have two categories. One are something called the alpha agonists, which are medications that help a lot with inattention and hyperactivity. Um, as well, sometimes they will also help with sleep. So for example, clonidine. So a lot of kids with ADHD have a lot of tr sleep troubles. They have a lot of trouble settling down at night and their parents will say, you know, they're not going to bed until like 11 or 12. And so sometimes it's a positive benefit or side effect from the medication that they're going to help with sleep. But during the day, they're going to help with impulse control and being hyperactive. Another uh, alpha agonist is uh, guanifestin. Some people may have heard of that. And then stratera is another common one, uh, commonly prescribed. Um, as well, the third class are kind of the antidepressants. These are uh, later used, such as like Welbutrin, and they work on hormones such as dopamine, and they also help with focus, and they're not, they're a non-controlled medication. Um, so those are the medicines for ADHD. Um, also for therapies for ADHD, you definitely want to consider that as well. Uh, therapies that have been well studied are CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, as well as ADD coaching or executive functioning coaching. 
Um, these are great options for kids and they work on their organizational skills. They work on their self-control. A lot of times with ADHD, kids are going to have a lot of um, low frustration tolerance and even kind of emotional dysregulation. So um, they're it's hard for them to contain their impulses and their emotions. And so a lot of times CBT can address those skills as well as the ADD coaching can help them with school performance. They even recently approved um, a video game as treatment for ADHD. So I thought that was interesting. I've been starting to see those and actually uh, for, I saw one specifically recently um, for uh, children that are on the autism spectrum as well. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but I mean, I think it's really great that we're using technology in those ways now too. So, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, so we just have a couple more minutes here, Dr. Rosenberg. I can't believe we're already running out of time today. Um, but one more question um, for uh, folks on the autism spectrum. Are there medications that can help? Is it more skills-based therapies? What, what's the most beneficial course of treatment for folks on the spectrum? Yeah, so with autism, um, a lot of times we don't see people in a vacuum, um, especially as a psychiatrist. It's very, uh, you know, you don't always see them with just autism. That, that may happen, mm -hmm. but a lot of times people with autism are coming in with secondary diagnoses, such as anxiety, OCD, ADHD. And so a lot of the medications uh, for autism are addressing kind of the secondary, what we call comorbidities or other diagnoses that come with autism. The most prevalent would be anxiety. So a lot of times people with autism will be on antidepressants like uh, Zoloft or Prozac that will help diminish the anxiety and help with like transitions, help with uh, social skills, help with getting out of the house. There are two medications that are approved for autism. That's Risperdal and Abilify. And those really help with irritability with autism. And these are in our younger kids that sometimes will become physically or verbally aggressive. Um, either to teachers or peers or parents, and those medications will help regulate that. Great, thank you. Well, we really appreciate you being here today, Dr. Rosenberg. This is a lot of fantastic content, and of course, there's a lot more we could expand on around these topics, but I think this is really great for our listeners to know. Um, can you remind our listeners one more time where they can find you and potentially reach out to you for um, some of the services you provide? Sure. If you can check out our website of www.mountainmentalhealth.org and some additional websites or resources that you can go to if you have more questions on ADHD in the community, you can check out www.chadchadd.org and they do have some additional podcasts for families and adults. And the other resource is ADDtude. So it's www.addi-t-u-d-e. Uh, you can look at mag.org. Great. Well, thank you so much again for being here. And thank you to everyone for listening. Thanks for tuning in to Holding Ground. You can find us here every Monday morning at 9 a.m. I'm Laura Richer, owner of Anchor Light Therapy Collective. And I'm Michelle Mooney, a therapist at Anchor Light Therapy Collective. Find us online at anchorlighttherapy.com. We'll see you next week.